I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. Imagine Deep and Cut. I do. I think about you, Deep and Cut. It's only right to think about Deep Cut you love and hold it tight. You're listening to Deep Cut. You're listening to Deep Cut. Ba 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 ba. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life in Korea to bring context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Last week, we introduced Wong Kar Wai with the popular pick, his 1994 low-budget film of Yearning, Place, and Time, Chungking Express. So today we're going into the deep cut picks, and we're going to be going in chronological order, which means I'm up first. My pick is 1997's Happy Together. It stars Tony Leung and Leslie Chung as troubled lovers who break up while visiting Argentina, leaving Tony Leung's La Yufai stranded, longing for home and companionship. This is a movie that means a lot to me. It's one of those movies where what I bring into it matters as much as what's on screen, and I'll explain what I mean there. But first, I want to hear how you both feel about this movie and how you feel about this rewatch. Ooh, Wilson. Ooh, thank you. Oh, sorry. Uh-huh. Thank you, Eli. <laughs> <laughs> For a second there, I thought we were going to... I was in a... Perfect response. Yeah, I was in like a Looney Tunes episode. Oh. Ooh, Wilson. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I really love happy together i think it was one of the later wongs that i discovered hmm. after watching it, i think I've, I've seen it a total of four times i was really lucky to catch the restoration when it played in hong kong late last year hmm. late in 2021 i saw the new version on the big screen and also saw the new version most recently while prepping for the podcast i think it is a really special movie in wong's filmography it is basically a perfect movie. I think that I could say that for me, I think around six of Wong Kar-wai's movies are perfect to me. <laughs> and this is very, very high up there. And I think I can relate to a lot of what the movie is trying to say, not only with its like personal relationships, but I think more so the political underbelly mm. or, or the political context in which this movie needed to be made or was made within. I do believe that it is Wong's most political movie and maybe the last that we see of that sort of thing. And also when doing research for this episode, I also found out or I just realized that this was sort of the end of his early era, like Wong's like entering into his like mid-career, late career stages where mm. he after this, he, he stopped making movies that feel really run and gunny yeah. even though the way that he made them still is probably very like run and gunny in the way that he would just shoot so much and then like chomp down but this really felt like we were talking about um chunking express with the like shooting conditions and everything it really felt like it was like a lightning in a bottle type movie as well in a, in a different kind of way but still very felt very special Agreed, yeah. It's a really special movie. Ben, how about you? Hmm, let me think. I think Happy Together, if we're going to continue looking at directors as having different phases. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really introducing this this year on the pod. Slicing people's careers into three parts. But anyway, I think it's interesting that it's his last of these kind of looser films. Because when you look at it, I think it is probably the best looking of yeah. these loose films because i think mm. the thing that i really like about happy together is the visual quality of it it has this the word i come back to in my mind is woozy mm. like it's like you're watching it a little drunk yeah <laughs> it's the kind of feeling you get and it has these great compositions using the wide angle lenses and you don't really see that with chunking express chunking express feels a little bit more defined by just being handheld yeah whereas this one it feels like it's handheld but with a more with more of a mission to come up with these frames, mm -hmm. especially the indoor white shots and also the outdoor white shots in the early parts of the film, which I think really stand out. My reservations for this film come in the story of it. It is a film that is very loose with its plot, especially in the first, I would say, 
two thirds of it. It's pretty much trying to give you this portrait of the relationship between Fai and Wing. Do we call him Wing? I don't know how to shorten this. Like you, Fai and well, I, I don't. I don't know how to like. They don't really shorten themselves. Yeah. I think you have to. They just they call each other by their full names. Right. That's so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so like the main two characters, like the the kind of romantic relationship that they have. That's kind of like the portrait that we're getting in the first hour or so. And then Changchun's character kind of comes in a little bit as we go into the second half. Not that that's a wrong way of structuring a film because there are many kind of loose films that are about kind of sketching a portrait. But I think my kind of resistance to this film and the way it tells its story is kind of more of a personal thing where I just got a bit tired of the kind of relationship that they had because it's extremely toxic and yeah. pretty volatile. Volatile <laughs> relationship. And then after the first half hour, I'm like, I don't need to see so much of this because it started to feel slightly repetitive to me. Like watching them kind of go off the wall over each other. Although it's very fun to see Tony being this kind of different, less calm and collected kind of character that we usually see him in. Yeah. yeah. But it kind of, for me, got a little tiresome because then it's like, how much can we see two men shout at each other and throw things at each other and hit each other? 96 minutes. Not enough. <laughs> I, Not enough. I think, like, <laughs> I, like, I think that's why when Chongqing's character comes in, it's so refreshing and kind and quieter. And I, I'm really more drawn to that. And I kind of wish there was more time spent with that. It almost feels like, and I think this is probably sacrilegious, but I feel like there should have been less Leslie in this. <laughs> oh, that's sort of sacrilegious. <laughs> yeah. I know it is, but <laughs> it's kind of how I feel kind of watching this again, I think for the second time, that it might become more of a movie that me personally would like to watch more, but I can understand like what there is to like here and like the kind of pain that he's trying to put you through in terms of the two characters that he's painting here uh, in terms of the leads. That makes sense. That, it's funny because I have almost an opposite reaction where <laughs> the final third of the movie with Chung Chen starts to lose me a little bit. Mm. It clicked oh. a little bit more for me on this watch, why that section is there and moves a little bit more slowly. But that's funny. We're basically flipped. Yeah, that's sections. super interesting. And I think I think that says more about us than Probably. the film. Probably. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Emoji. <laughs> yeah. I also really love Changchun's section. I think he sort of has like a Takeshi Kaneshiro mm. energy to him. Oh, yeah. And fits very, very cleanly into a, um, like, old Wong Kar Wai in Hong Kong world. Mm. I, he gets really little screen time, mm -hmm. but his character is already so defined when you meet him for the first time. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel such a strong connection with him, and I'm so glad that he came back for the Grandmaster, but I really wish that, like, I guess he was the right age when Wong was making more of these early movies because I think he would have been, like, such a strong presence mm. in that era of of Wong's filmography hmm. if anyone doesn't know Chang Chen is like an incredible Taiwanese actor who starred in one of like the most incredible movies ever at age like 13 uh, which is a brighter summer day so and you will know him from Dune oh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's in Dune he's the dude from Dune he's the doctor yeah he's Dune, the Chinese bro. doctor, oh. Oh, the, the doctor. <laughs> so yeah big guy Chang Chen <laughs> I really like this little bit when his character, I don't know if we even have a name for him. He tells this story about why he prefers listening to people, mm -hmm. which I realize is a little bit also Murakami-esque, but I love it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, Because it's a little fantastical and yet kind of rooted in the mundane and it gives him a bit of a superpower. But I think that that part when he's talking to Tony's character is extremely endearing. I think that's when you kind of fall in love a little bit with Zhang Chen. They kind of see his charm. He's got this kind of like slightly naive good boy charm that's kind of also this free spirit. I, I think I just needed more time with Changchun's character. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that would have kind of balanced the movie for me right. in terms of like hmm. the supreme volatility and like this karma side of the coin. If you view it as Lai Yufai escalating his temper and behavior when he's with Ho Po Wing and then cooling down with Chang Chen's character mm. in the second part of the movie. Mm -hmm. Those are two lopsided arcs because the first one gets more time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I see what you're saying, Ben. But I think the Ho Po Wing stuff is so like central to Lai Yufai's progression as a character mm -hmm. that I think it is important because he like in that calming place all he's still thinking about basically is hoi bo wing mm. it informs the last part like i don't think you 
can get the last part without the first two thirds. Yeah, like it's a sort of a release mm. that that you need. But I I understand what why like you would want it to be longer. Hmm. Yeah. But Eli, do you have more information on on the context of this movie that can help us? before we dive in deeper. Yes. This context is coming from the book Wong Kar Wai, which Wilson is reading in conjunction with the recording of these episodes, and also from the documentary Buenos Aires Zero Degree, directed by Kwan Pung Young and Amos Lee, about the making of Happy Together in Argentina. I think there are three big things that would create a well-rounded, informed viewing of Happy Together. I think those are political context of Hong Kong at the time, the casting of Leslie Chung, and this as a so-called gay movie, and the story of the production itself in Argentina, and the feelings of exile that everyone was experiencing on that set. It was a grueling production from what it sounds like. So Wilson, can I have your help with the political context of the Hong Kong. Kong context? I guess to give some pretext to the film, this was made after Fallen Angels, which was sort of Wong's response or own extension of Chungking Express. At this time, it was getting towards 1997, which for Hong Kong, uh, July 1st, 1997 was a really big day because that's the day of the handover, which is basically when the British government, which colonized us for 100 years, agreed to give Hong Kong back to China in a like a special basis on uh, 1st of July 1997, which is 100 years after uh, Hong Kong was conceded. And just all throughout Hong Kong, people were freaking out. People were freaking out about what would happen, how their lives would change, uh, what would change, because a lot of things were up in the air. So there's just a lot of fear and there's a lot of panic. And knowing how the, the, the Chinese government was back then and how China was back then, the disparity between Hong Kong being a really high-end, world-class city, which had been brought forward so much by our colonizers, <laughs> England, and mm. versus like China, which was just right after Deng Xiaoping's death and was still entering a, a like an industrial phase, and I guess the 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 battling governmental systems just freaked everyone out, and a lot of filmmakers were trying to churn out movies that would push the boundaries or they thought would not be allowed in this new Hong Kong, mm. which did include Wong Gawai, which also links into Eli's second point about it being a gay movie because Wong was fearful about the idea that there wouldn't be a chance for someone in Hong Kong to make a gay movie after the handover, considering China's stance at the time on gay people. And having worked with Leslie Chung, who was at that time, at least according to the book, at, at that time he was already outed, Wong convinced Leslie that he needed to star in a gay movie, or uh, Hong Kong needed a real gay movie before 1997. Mm. And that was sort of the instigator of all of Happy Together. And you also, there's a lot of like really great 1997 Hong Kong movies. So that, that was like when the year when people really just like were, were like freaking out. So they were just trying to get out as much wild shit as they could. And uh, there's some really good movies there. Name a few. Toss out some wrecks. Um, let me think. I think... Checking Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to double check. Uh, Fruit Chan's Made in Hong Kong came out in 1997. Oh. oh. We also had Peter Chan's Comrades Almost a Love Story, which is sort of hinges on the idea of the mainland China to Hong Kong diaspora and then from Hong Kong to the rest of the world diaspora as well, Mm. as well as Ringo Lam's On Fire series. So like City on Fire, School on Fire, we're all just made because of this 97 freak out. Mm. The other thing reportedly from the documentary that led to the start of... Wong thinking of filming in Argentina was, he said, quote, I'm a big fan of soccer and Maradona is Argentinian, so I figured it would be a good idea to do a movie in Argentina, <laughs> end quote. But that's ridiculous. Yeah, like, you know that's not the reason. Let's, let's basically just put my finger on the on the globe kind of filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, uh, nice that you can do that. <laughs> like, to just go somewhere. Because you, you don't know what, what it means to make a film in Argentina. Probably. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing in this documentary is that Wong has this very tight-knit crew that he had worked with on his previous movies. They were very loyal to him, and he brought them all to Argentina in mid-August 1996, 
right from the start, people like Letitia Ye, the production secretary, were location scouting and getting to know life on the ground in Buenos Aires, because it's very different coming from one city where you know how to film and evoke everyday life mm. and going to another. Mm -hmm. But the trick with this movie is that it's not quite everyday Buenos Aires life, right? Mm -hmm. It's the experience of being an outsider coming into a new mm. everyday context. Wong says things in this documentary like, quote, during my stay in Argentina, I gradually lost my sense of time, end quote. There's a really lovely poem he wrote about this topic at the end of the documentary, which I encourage listeners to go and seek out. I won't give it away. But when he talks about losing his sense of time, the actual lived effect of that on his crew <laughs> was that Wong was coming to another country and bringing people whose homes were in Hong Kong and Taiwan, and he was going into the situation without a script, not knowing where the story would go. He was hoping to find it along the way. This meant that production lasted for over three months, and it was grueling. <laughs> there were production houses that were overcharging them. There were gun and bomb threats on set. Uh, Leslie Chung had to leave partway through due to a scheduling conflict. Tony Leung had an escape plan. <laughs> it sounds like it was pretty miserable. What does that mean? He had an escape plan because they were traveling to Iguazu again to shoot. There was a second time they shot at the waterfalls and he made a plan that if when he got off the plane in Buenos Aires that he would run to the international airport and catch a flight back to Hong Kong and leave everybody. <laughs> but he decided against it. Because he got sick of shooting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was, oh he God. kept, he, he talked for ages about getting really sick of being in Argentina and <laughs> that informing the end of the movie for Wong. His decision to bring like Yufai back to Hong Kong and back to Taiwan was sort of informed by a lot of the crew's sentiments and the cast's sentiments at the time. It really sounds like a pretty unpleasant production and it's implied at the end of the documentary that these conditions lead to the breakup of Wong's loyal crew from the first phase of his career uh. and I think there's an argument you could make that this pushes him into the next phase of his career with the less run-and-gun sort of style. Would you agree, Wilson? Yes, yes, I agree. And I think that this, and also, I guess, coupled with the sort of never-ending shooting of In the Mood for Love and 2046 by extension, that really pushed Chris Doyle and Wong Gawai apart, I guess, according to stuff I've read, is mm. that Wong's constant pursuing of perfection but not really knowing what perfection is until... He comes across it, mm. just made Chris Doyle mad and not want to work with him anymore. But that's how perfection is made, right? You can't just go in thinking you can bang something out like this in a week of shooting. <laughs> it's hard to argue with the results because it's hard to manufacture spontaneity. Wong says in the documentary, quote, I'm still not sure what I do want, so I'll keep looking, end quote. And that sums it up. It's a process of finding what works for him. But you also see how that's hard on his crew. Yeah. So with this extended stay in Argentina, an unfamiliar place, a different language, these streets that are sort of half European, a big melting pot of different cultures and people of different origins, and also a lot of its own troubled history that you're coming into without much knowledge of, a different cultural context and a different historical context. Here's where my personal experience or maybe baggage comes into this. <laughs> I mentioned on our 2022 episode that I studied abroad in Argentina for six weeks in the summer of 2016. And I just remember the feeling very clearly of like walking around Buenos Aires. Did you have a little fling? <laughs> no. Sorry, <laughs> 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 sorry. <laughs> I had no heartbreak in Argentina. I was just wondering how, how deep this personal connection went. <laughs> it's more the feeling of being in a new city, of both longing for home and wanting to immerse yourself deeply in this new place where you are, the feeling of anonymity. There's something that the script supervisor, Ai Chen, says in the documentary. She says, quote, I like going to places where nobody knows me, nobody knows who I am or where I'm from, end quote. And I heard that and I was like, oh, that's the power of this movie to me. Mm -hmm. It's this very clearly distilled experience of being a stranger in a new place and feeling 
alone in some ways, mm-hmm. but also very present and connected to where you are through things like these wide lens shots that Ben was mentioning that really put you into the place. So that was similar to my feeling on this trip. And then watching Happy Together for the first time, I felt that again. Oh, wow. And it's just one of those movies where you have a feeling that already exists and then you see someone replicate it and you feel seen for that feeling, even though Mm -hmm. the circumstances and the plot of the movie are very different from my experiences. Yeah, it's really incredible when a movie can do that. Yeah. And, and, and touch you like so deep within. It's very emotionally immediate. Mm. Did you recognize anywhere? I recognize the main square where the Obeliska monument is. Time lapse. Yeah. Is it? Exactly. And the buses look the exact same as they did in 1997. Mm-hmm. That's nice. I mean, aside from that, you haven't told us, but what else you like about the film, Eli? Oh. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> why did you? Why is this your deep cut pick, Eli? Yeah, you haven't gone into that. Um, <laughs> the main reason is this. The main reason is I went to Argentina one time. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> I'm kidding. You sick burn. Yeah, it's the Leo DiCaprio meme of uh, pointing at the screen. <laughs> that's my reason. <laughs> I okay yeah I mean a large part of it is that it's this emotional rawness that is in the movie Mm. I do agree with Ben for different reasons that the plot maybe isn't the thing that grabs me though I do think the structure is very interesting especially considering that most of the story was discovered and designed as they went along I feel that it's a very lightning in a bottle combination of this crew and oh my god, these actors Mm -hmm. to really create this unique, specific feeling that doesn't really exist in another movie. It's just the specificity and uniqueness of it broadly. And then if I dig down, I do really like movies where you can tell that the spontaneity is organic and it's really, really very clearly discovered, Mm -hmm. this movie, Mm -hmm. as they went along. It's pretty hard to deny That's one of the things about Chunking Express that I enjoy, too, is this magnetic, what's going to happen? What are they going to do? Like, just the joy of seeing what will be discovered next. Mm. To me, this is a step above Chunking because it's imbued with this deep sadness Mm -hmm. and anger at the heartbreak that Lai Yufai is going through. This one really puts you through it. Yeah, it does. Whereas Chunking is exploratory in its discovery, this yeah. is really trying to burrow into the feeling of its main character. Mm. Maybe that's not entirely fair to say that Chungking doesn't do that. But here I feel a pull mm-hmm. in that journey of discovery. Yeah. But I, I think Chungking is intentionally more lighter on its feet. Yes. Whereas with this one, maybe just through the editing or through Wong's intentions, it feels feels like he's trying to say something. Yeah. Although it's not confirmed in what he was trying to say through this, <laughs> Stephen Teo's book leans very heavily in the sort of like how this movie is sort of like Dilse, mm. in which Lai Yufei and Hoi Po Wing represent two sides of a Hong Kong-China relationship. Oh, interesting. And they keep on hurting each other and coming back to each other. Mm. But what remains best for, for both parties here? Mm. Tio really argues very heavily for this. He has some quotes attributed to Wong about making this film about 1997. And Wong is quoted in saying about the handover, quote, we wanted to escape, but the more we wanted to escape, the more we became inseparable from Hong Kong. No matter where we went, Hong Kong was always with us. So by leaving Hong Kong and making a movie outside of Hong Kong, he sort of inadvertently made a movie that is actually directly about Hong Kong as a city. Ben looks entirely bemused. No, the Dilsey comparison is making me question why Changchun and Taiwan is being featured in this. Yeah. Just blowing my mind yeah. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See? Because when Changchun if you, if Changchun fits into it like that, <laughs> that's like, oh my god. That's like sort of mind blowing, right? I mean I try not to watch my films with such a metaphorical, symbolic, you know, lens. Yeah. 
So like I, I'm definitely resisting that, but I can see how you might want to construct something like that. And a lot of Chinese storytelling is allegorical, like using analogies and puns to like tell a story without really telling you what the story is about. Because a lot of modern Chinese storytelling within not just China, but I'm talking about like Chinese people yeah. having to say things without saying things. Exactly. <laughs> so Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's giving me really big hmm vibes. <laughs> and some of the endings that they did shoot were pretty violent and telling. Like there's a there are shots in the documentary that Eli mentioned earlier, uh, where it's an alternate ending where like Yufai like kills himself and mm. you see him like slashing his throat and slashing his wrists. And that's like was very <laughs> shocking to me. Yeah. But also sort of matches Dilsey in an even more clearer way mm. where it's like, what is the answer to all of these big issues? Mm. I'm trying not to, to, you know, actually say the things I'm thinking about because I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of this more political allegory. But anyway, but I do like the idea of this film being more about Hong Kong than it is about being in Argentina. And I think the interesting thing about it is that the longing for Hong Kong, which, yes... Uh, Lai Yufai does mention it a few times but he doesn't until like maybe like midway through does he really talk about Hong Kong that much but hmm. there is this very strong feeling of alienation within the Argentinian context of it yes that you can feel and it's the same thing with like Wong's films where it's about the feeling and it is quite difficult to describe what that feeling is I was also thinking about how this kind of relates to Chung King as well with this film there are so many locations that keep repeating yeah, yeah. that we return to the apartment return to the bar, we return to the kitchen, and then after that we have the slaughterhouse. And so it actually has a very, I would say, measured structure, even despite the chaos within the scenes. And then what you kind of get is that the spontaneity kind of comes from whenever you enter one of these locations, you don't know whether you're going to get like a scene, like a whole scene, or you're going to get like a flash. Right. It keeps you on your toes. You never know when you're going to go into an event. Hmm. And I think it creates a kind of lulling rhythm to it of repetition and that might be the kind of reason why i was feeling a bit tired of the first hour but it might be intentional in that it's creating the sense of like being stuck in some place yes. and like going yeah. through the emotions over yeah. and over again agree yeah. i can understand yeah. why that kind of decision is made and like how it works and that creates that yeah. sense of unease through repetition there are a couple of things that wong does stylistically to break up the chunks of the movie mm -hmm. the most notable being the move from black and white footage to color, mm -hmm. which happens after Hoi Po Wing says his iconic line, Ooh. let's start over. <laughs> and they decide to move in together into La Yufai's apartment. Then it goes into color. Fun, but really like sad fact. A few years after Leslie passed away, Leslie passed away in 2003, there's a story that Tony said that he accidentally like butt dialed Leslie's number and he was really shocked to hear that someone kept on paying for his phone bills and he could hear his voice on the voicemail and it really, really shocked him. And then when he, uh, when he had to leave a message, he said th those same lines. Uh, what if we, we start over? Whoa. Oh God. Yeah. I read that today and I like cried for a little bit. <laughs> They were they were really really close even before shooting this they were they were really really close mm. and and also after you are well loved yeah but to extend I guess to to go down this route I think that both of them give like career defining performances in this like I really love Tony in um, in the mood for love but I think this one like the the way that he's able to stretch himself to fit this character it is so admirable to me you could really see him in the in his depths like here in this movie mm. um whereas in the mood for love seems like a i guess an easier <laughs> stretch <for him. laughs> playing it cool yeah. yeah he's a real injured rage here mm. yeah i'm yeah. trying to think i mean of, of the films that tony has been in that i know of all that are more well known this is like the most kind of unhinged to get to see him yeah and it, it's it's a nice change of pace but it's still a testament to how good he is at being quiet even with such explosive scenes like when yeah like the quiet that you see Layufai 
show in the later portion is very different from the quiet you see in the cool cop from Junkin Express Junkin and Express, yeah. the reserved romantic in, in the move for love is very very different like the simmer here is like almost to a boil like it's close to a boil you can so see close. it in his face it is quite remarkable that he can do so much of nothing yeah still one of the best yeah. actors ever god damn yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, is. For real. For real. yeah he is and I think Leslie is I think is is equally as powerful. I think, mm, agreed. but it, it, in a different way. I I do feel like this movie or work of fiction was is probably the closest we will ever get to like Leslie Lee being able to like express how he's feeling about everything. Mm-hmm. Well, if people don't know, Leslie committed suicide in 03 after being under public spotlight for a long time and also being the only like out queer person, but also being like the biggest star in Hong Kong, really takes its toll and i think um yeah yeah, it was it was really hard for him and i think the ability to to play an out gay man as a queer man was really important for leslie Mm. and a lot of people have said that this was a role that was very close to his heart that is another thing that makes happy together so special for me because Growing up in Hong Kong, people adore Leslie. He's like top tier, like pop star, movie star of the 80s, 90s. Everyone loved him. Everyone called him Big Brother. It was like like a whole thing. And when he passed away, devastating too. It was sort of like losing Michael Jackson. It was like that big mm. for people in Hong Kong. And that's why I think a lot of people in Hong Kong have a really close bond and close connection in their own hearts to this movie. Hmm. because of Leslie. His positioning in the movie is really interesting too, where he at first comes off as an antagonist to Tony Leung, who of course we're getting more access to through the voiceover. Mm-hmm. Right. But you see the ways in which Lai Yu Fai can't control himself too and winds up hurting Hoi Po Wing. And they're in a cycle of hurting each other and caring for each other together. Yeah. You know, almost like a dance. Yeah, like a mm. tango. That incredible shot. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then at the end, when you finally do get some independent access to Hoi Po Wing in the old apartment that they shared, it's pretty devastating. Yeah. Whew. He's in pain too. I think Leslie's performance is more unrestrained in a sense mm. and in a way that really complements what Tony is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite moment from him is when Laiufai visits Hopo Wing and Laiufai is drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and then they start like arguing and then he makes this funny joke making fun of Laiufai's job as like a Chinese tourist hand. I don't know how he explained his job, but like he like manages a Chinese tourist in the bar, then he kind of makes fun of him and like flails his arms and goes sing 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 sing. Yeah. That's my favorite moment <laughs> when he just puts his entire body into making fun of somebody <laughs> that he loves. <laughs> yeah, but I I like that part a lot. That's like my favorite moment from Leslie in this. <laughs> it's a good moment. You don't really think that they're good or healthy for each other, but whereas other movies would convey that heavy-handedly mm. and make it about how bad they are for each other, you just feel a lot of ache, and you yeah. you do want them to be together, but yeah. you know it's not right. It's the same thing Ben said about it's this feeling that you can't really convey, but it's it's very achy and tender. I don't know if I want them to be together. <laughs> like, so much of me like is like, can I pull this guy out of the screen and just slap him in the face and be like, can you go find somebody else? <laughs> like, that's my feeling, you know, when I watch this. Where it's like, make a sensible choice for yourself. Of course, that's me coming from where I am. The parts of the relationship which I find the most intriguing, and I kind of wish the film kind of went into a little bit more, is like in the first half, you kind of get a feeling that La Yufai is being strung along by wing and like he's the guy that's like getting the shot on the stick all right he yeah he feels like he's being strung along and that wing is doing whatever he wants and now this guy is kind of in the crossfire right but then when Fai takes wing's passport and essentially holds him hostage in argentina and also kind of 
in the midst of taking care of him mm -hmm. when his hands are hurt, also kind of holds him hostage within the apartment. Then you can kind of see the possessiveness from Layu Fai, which I think that's the stuff I really want to see more of that kind of can balance right. that relationship to see, you know, right. not just why is Hopo Wing bad for Layu Fai, but why are both of them terrible for each other? Yeah. And yeah, but I kind of want to see more. I want to see Layu Fai being worse. Like he's, I mean, he's really <laughs> been pretty bad, but I want to see him being worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I sort of agree, but I think it is, like, laid pretty clear. And mm. because we're getting a lot of things from Layu Fai's, like, narration and perspective, it makes sense that you don't want to make him so hated. Mm. And I think there's, a like, a, a, a tricky balance. And when watching the doc, you realize how much fat or, like, things were cut. Like, there's a scene in the doc like a short deleted scene where Tony leaves the apartment and he has a narration that says, oh, I don't know if I come back, will Hoi Po Wink still be there? Yeah. I should get a lock for the door. And that was like a, a, a moment that I was like, like so many times, every time I see a deleted scene, it just like clicks in my mind. Like, I know why you didn't use this. And the reason why I think he didn't use it, it would have pushed it too far. Editing a Wong Kar Wai film is such a tricky task in balancing story he he when he shoots he just maybe like for a couple days he just goes down this thread and like shoots with this other like character and actor that we've like we never even see in the film but he just goes down that tangent and shoots like a lot of different scenes this happens to like three different women in this movie who mm. in the end we, we just don't get any women but from the deleted scenes we have three like fleshed out characters with narration like who have narration and he just decides to cut it because i guess balancing story mm. right and what is important mm. and what ends up being important is like you fight in hoipo wing's relationship but if you're interested in seeing the the other threads that this movie could have taken you should watch the documentary because yeah there's also a lot more changshan stuff but i th th this is going back to saying i think it is a it is a tightrope walk in depicting this toxic relationship i for i for one think it works like i think in my head they are both equally as bad for each other and it's not mm. an imbalance of Boeing fucking over like you fight them both fucking each other over i agree it sucks, <laughs> it sucks. it's rough on the note of Chang Chen, I'm interested to hear more of what you guys think about the relationship between La Yufai and that character. I find some ambiguity on exactly what their feelings are for each other. This is encapsulated for me by the final beat that Chang Chen has in his voiceover, where he is playing back the recording that La Yufai has made crying into the cassette tape at the end of the earth he plays this back to relinquish laifa's sadness chang chen says maybe something went wrong with the tape it sounds like someone was crying mm. <laughs> it's like he's actively not acknowledging something that he does know deep down in a similar way that like that tony lung's cop 633 yeah. or 663 i still can't get it right knows that someone is breaking into his apartment but is ignoring it and saying, oh, the apartment's crying. Another example of Wong Kar Wai's himbo cinema. <laughs> <laughs> but in avoiding those feelings, I think both characters are revealing to us that they have some pretty deep feelings for their respective potential friends or lovers. Yeah. Do you read that same potential in this yeah. character pairing? I think it's pretty baked in. Well, at least the way that I took it was pretty baked in. I think knowing that Layufai is a queer man and acts interested in a lot of ways makes it clear from one side of it. Whereas Chang Chen's character, I guess, is a little more ambiguous, whether it is like a sort of a comrade brother type thing, hmm. which is very, I guess, strong in the lineage of, of Chinese film, where you have this comrade relationship which could be a lot very homoerotic at times um <laughs> hmm. but i do think there are glimmers there like when like yufai asks him oh why didn't you like go on a date with the girl who asks him on a date and he says i don't like to watch movies <laughs> which i'm like okay <laughs> yeah sure dude <laughs> he says he likes women of deeper voices yeah <laughs> and then in his voiceover it says he really likes like voice like voice 
Yeah. So I think it's up in the air on Changchun's side of things. I like this relationship because it is ambiguous and that it and it's not ambiguous in a like one person really is interested in one. It's not like a queer baby kind of thing. No. It's just a they're friends and like maybe there is something, but it doesn't really matter. But they're still friends. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. we don't spend enough time with them to really get a full sense of how close they actually are. Yes, they share a few tender moments, but it's not like it really gives you a sense of like oh these. These guys are bros for life, man. Like, it doesn't really give you a sense of that. You know, they're just close. But when they separate, they have a sense that they might never see each other again, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which means that there's a sense that they they don't necessarily think that they need to hold on to this, which could also just be another romantic notion of wanting it to, to be fleeting. But I like that the whole idea of their relationship is always kind of in this nebulous potential zone that lets it be more ambiguous and amorphous that I like that it's not trying to you know push any one side being attracted to the other yeah. or that it is trying to cement the sexuality of Chen's character like it's it's just kind of yeah. this nebulous space and so then what we have is just two people who in this very moment of time have each other yeah. to lean on and that's all they really need and it like it's romantically unromantic mm-hmm. in a sense which I think is quite unusual for Wong mm. I would say and I, I, that's why I kind of I'm drawn to it, you know. You don't get a lot of yeah. films from Wong that's just, you know, about friends. <laughs> so he has like two friends who maybe like each other, but you know, it's just yeah. friends. At Romare. Yeah, at Romare. <laughs> Wong Kar Wai's boyfriends and girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I like that about this relationship. I like that a lot. And that informs my thinking about the arc that Laifi goes on in terms of escalating his discomfort and then maybe arguably cooling down and getting a better sense of perspective through his friendship and having more of a sense of at-homeness where he is before ultimately leaving. Which makes me wonder also, where do you feel that Laiufai is emotionally at the end of the movie? What is the emotion at the end of the movie for you? I think it's hopeful. I think it's hopeful. And I... (sighs) It's really hard for me not to see this movie as a political allegory yeah. because that epilogue or last section begins with La Yufai waking up in Taipei on the day that Deng Xiaoping dies. Like all the signs are, are pointing somewhere <laughs> and it's hard not to like recognize the elephant in the room. But I think it ends on a hopeful note for the future of these inter-China relations. I th- that's what I think. Like after Tony coming into contact with Changchun's character and him giving him sort of like the I don't know the the incentive to go home or to finish off what he he started in Argentina hmm. which was to see the falls and then go home it settles me and it's hopeful for La Yufai's future I like that even if it's not with Hoi Po Wing which it shouldn't be right <laughs> by the way Iguazu Falls are some of the most incredible things I've seen in my life. You mean on screen or in person? IRL, bro. Oh, (laughs) IRL. Damn. The shots here look insane. Like, I I have no sense of scale of this thing. Like It is more massive than you can imagine. The shot of him, his close-up, as the water is, like, coming at his face. Where do you stand to look at it? You stand right there. (laughs) Like, in the fall. How do you not die? And there are great, like, nature paths through the area. And you get to see different vantage points. There are all these different falls. Like, it's not just one spot. It's a whole area of incredible waterfalls. Wow. Humans are tiny. Yeah. And yet our emotions are huge. (laughs) It's true. I think it's his most beautiful looking movie. I think Chris Mm, Doyle does an incredible job in this one. (laughs) Agreed. Oh my gosh. With what he's given, right? Like, I think rarely in this scene does he have, like, a light. Like, that's not, like, a light that's used in the scene. Like, it's it's incredible what his camera is able to... (laughs) <laughs> to capture yeah. and also William Chang who PD'd the shit out of it I, this is what I found out from the doc is that the tiling on the apartment even outside of their apartment room but the whole apartment complex um, William Chang like tiled that whole shit what the hell the kitchen and everything <laughs> and made it look like there was a lot of ink blotches and smears and stains it looks decrepit as evidence of, of the spontaneity of the, the film it just feels and looks very lived in, which is hard to do because you're making a movie in like a in a country that you're not from. Yeah. Yeah. In order to get that sense of lived inness, I think it would have been hard to do if they didn't 
spend that whole time in Buenos Aires. Like, I don't think there would have been enough time to, like, soak in the whole vibe and feeling and emotion in order for Wong to fully complete this movie. Yeah, it's an incredible cooperation between the production design and the lenses that, again, make you feel like you are in the space pretty solidly. Yeah. I know what I wanted to mention as a final thing. Astor Piazzolla was an incredible Argentinian composer who, who spearheaded the genre known as Tango Nuevo, New Tango. And his music is all over this movie, which I didn't realize until this viewing when I was listening to some of those interludes and hearing the music and thinking, this is Astor Piazzolla, right? Looked it up and yeah, he's all over the soundtrack. The mood of his music is very matter of fact, but mournful in a way. It just suits the movie so perfectly. And whoever was choosing the music knew how to apply this music that is from Argentina to this movie to create a simultaneous wooziness, as Ben's saying, <laughs> and kind of an alienation too. It's very well applied here. And it's great great music that yeah. I recommend you seek out. Mm. It's probably Wong who did that. It is interesting thinking about how the music, you know, arises from where they are. Mm -hmm. There's almost like a mismatch looking at Tony on that oh, raft thing. <laughs> Barge. And then being sad, but then listening to this Nuevo Tango yeah. instead. <laughs> There's something melancholic about it, though. I, I do... I, 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 I There is a tinge of sadness. Or maybe it's because the only point of reference i have for this music is this movie mm. unlike you eli i'm not I'm not that cultured um, <laughs> i went to argentina for six weeks it does make me very sad <laughs> oh huh. yeah this feels like a good like two and two episode split where we do the first two of his early career and the last two of his late career. Because I think there is a really clear split between this movie and the next movie that we're going to talk about, which is the next movie in his filmography. Mm. Like, after this movie, he doesn't make a movie about contemporary Hong Kongers mm. or in Hong Kong. Like, everything's set in the past or the future or in America. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of both. <laughs> yeah, it could be. It could be. But I think there's a, some part of that is like gone and left behind. And yeah. I used to say that, oh, I wish Wong Wai made more movies, like made more of his early work. But I now realize that it's just not possible. Wong Wai says in the documentary, he says that Happy Together is a full stop. And it's the end of a certain period of life. Yeah. And I think he already knows that this is his last rendezvous like this. Even though he sort of gains more notoriety and popularity and is able to have bigger productions, that also means that he is, he is moving on from all of this. Yeah. And for the better, he's adapting. He's he's mm. transforming as a director. I still feel like I want more stuff from him but young people. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to see. Blossoms like yeah, Blossoms is set as a historical drama, but it is about young people. Yeah. Last episode we talked a lot about our reactions to the restoration. I didn't experience any bumps this time. And I actually like the end credit design. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah. what was changed? Like I read it that. It was just some color stuff, I think. Scenes were cut. Oh. Parts of really? scenes were cut because they said they couldn't find a negative. Oh. oh man. And so they were straight up cut. I'm not like that well versed on in Happy Together. Not much, I think. I think they said they shortened some of Tony's monologues. I think the color timing in Happy Together is significantly different from its original remasters on like home video. That shot of them outside on the yeah. roof, yeah. the sky looks a little weird. The color looks insane, like, but I really like it. Hmm. You think about the, the lighthouse shot also looks really good. Yeah. yeah. The shot of Chung Chen, which is clearly filmed from a boat circling around him on a super <sighs> long lens. Ooh. I saw that and I was like, Michael Bay wishes he could. <laughs> I want to do something like that. I want to do a shot like that. Fucking insane. But yeah, this in comparison with Fallen Angels, which I saw a couple days ago and like freaked me out because of the, the, <laughs> the widescreen, this was this was a lot smoother. <laughs> I have thoughts on the Fallen Angel widescreen, but I have nowhere to shout them into. So 
I'm shouting them now. Do it now. Go for it. Yes, I understand it was intended to be widescreen, but when you chop off the top, like, fifth and the bottom fifth of an image, you lose two-fifths of information that was there in the original cut that is not there in the new cut because you cut off the top and bottom. And I think the fisheye has less of an effect when you, like, crop the tops and the bottoms. It's supposed to look weird. You're, like, this is, like, a beautiful nightmare of a movie. It's, that's what Fall Angels is. I think by the end of this, that will be the restoration that I have, like, the biggest gripe with. Mm. Because it felt so different. It felt way too different. Mm. That's a shame. Okay, that's my (laughs) spiel. (laughs) (laughs) But I understand how he intended it for it to be a widescreen in the first place. Mm. And by widescreen, I mean CinemaScope (laughs) 2.35. Shout out CinemaScope (laughs) (laughs) 2.35. Random aside, I tried to rewatch Ashes of Time and I quit 20 minutes in. Oh! <laughs> Ashes of Time. Oh! I was like, I can't. It couldn't, it couldn't happen. It couldn't happen. I was like, I can't. This is happen. too much. Oh! <laughs> rip. I was like, this is boring. Rip. 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 It's complex. I tell you, it's complex. No, it's not. <laughs> There's just this one person going like, uh, I'm yin, I'm yang, and it's just going on and on. And I'm like, okay, bro. <laughs> Where are we going with this? Are you talking about Bridget Lynn's character? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, uh, okay. My deep cut should have been Ash of the Time. It's no. okay. 2046 will be a whole other thing as well. <laughs> I'll just be so confused about Ash of the Time. I'm, I'm so confused by it. I read a long movie. I was just like, what? (laughs) Well, okay. Here we are together. Happy. Thanks for talking about my deep cut pick. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for choosing it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you. Next time. <laughs> what pal? My longest you ever. My longest. <laughs>watch the doc on double speed <laughs> mm, smart and i skipped all the deleted scenes because i just wanted the information why because the movie <laughs> is as it is and i don't want all these other characters who don't exist it's true it's true